You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. And I, it's interesting because I, I don't think that anyone's theology would argue with the fact that we serve a God that stepped into our mess and met us. He meets us where we're at, right? And yet, when the church goes out to reach an unengaged, unreached people, we're not meeting them where they're at. The reality is that they're in that that they're in these digital spaces they're in they're consuming content like you said uh, uh story content on six days out of the week that's where their attention is that's what they're spending their time doing uh and we're not trying to we're not reaching them where they're at we're not stepping into where their t- attention is and right. meeting them where they are even though our theology would say that's what we need to be doing and so um, uh, are even those that would argue against story uh, and it has to be practical, it has to be logical, it has to be literary based um, are arguing against the own, the theology that they are teaching. Right. And so, um, man, uh, it's, it's uh, changing that mindset is, is a question that constantly I'm thinking about, I'm, yeah, I, I think you, you've, hit ideate on on. you've hit on something that's very important there. Uh, um, Mike Metzger uh, would say it this way. He said, uh, our theology may be true, but it's not meaningful. Mm. And the way to close that gap is people act on what they perceive to be meaningful. Mm. And the way to close that gap is through story is when we can identify with something that is is uh, touching our own human experience. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier that I think that we are moving, in the West, we're moving very quickly into an oral tradition culture uh, and a communication structure within this society. Um, I saw a recent stat from the U.S. government that said 22% of all eighth grade students are are completely illiterate and another 42% are considered functionally illiterate. And so together that adds up to a 64% uh, of America's public school students who will either drop out or graduate without ever being uh, becoming proficient in reading. And so you, you see this, that nobody, you or me or anyone is arguing in support of illiteracy, right? That's not what we're right. saying here. Right. But the reality is that there is a significant shift taking place in our communication structures within our society and a, I think globally. Uh, and so, man, how do we how do we prepare for that? How do we, again, as the church, if we're called to meet people where we're at in the same way our God meets us where we are at um, and to model his behavior, then 
like the models that we're using have to, there has to be a shift. Yeah. Right. And true. I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think that uh, personally, I think that the beauty of story is that good, good stories, effective stories have multiple levels of understanding. Hmm. When, when Jesus told stories on the one hand, the non-literate farmer, Middle Eastern farmer could understand what he was talking about and could relate to it. But his, his stories have also been mined by intellectuals and scholars for the last 20 centuries to, mm-hmm. to mine the depths of that story. And so the beauty of a great story is that there are multiple levels um, that your people that are non-literate and those that are highly literate can relate to because my, my bias is that we're all hardwired for story. And the, the power of story is that, is that uh, it can traverse those different levels. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, hey, this has been really incredible. I want to make sure that we take a moment to hear from today's sponsor. But when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on story-centric leader development and story with Rick Sessoms from Freedom to Lead International. Are you looking to grow your ministry but don't have the money or marketing knowledge to make that happen? There's good news. Google offers an advertising grant to churches and ministries that is worth $10,000 per month. This means that if your ministry is a 501c3 nonprofit, you are eligible to receive $120,000 per year in free advertising dollars. This allows you to place ads at the top of Google search results pages and drive thousands of visitors to your ministry website every month. Our sponsor, Click Nonprofit, helps your ministry acquire this Google ad grant and then manages your Google ads to ensure you get the most out of the grant. Schedule a free consultation at clicknonprofit.com to learn more about how this grant can help your specific ministry. Mention the Ministry Growth Show when you sign up to get 20% off your first three months of management. Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. We've been talking with Rick Sessoms about story. As we get back into the conversation, I want to spend some time discussing story-driven or story-centric models for leadership development. And I I want to spend some time exploring this idea and question posed by uh, who you already referenced, Dr. Fred uh, Fred Craddock, um, and restated in your book where Craddock asks, is there room for the story to serve as a major vehicle for communicating truth? So with that quote in mind, how should we think about that question in light of the gospel, the church, and the ministry and nonprofit sector as a whole? Like one of the one of the most powerful uh, statements that I think you made in your book is from a biblical perspective, the story doesn't just illustrate the gospel, the story carries the gospel, right? That, that's profound. And so in light of that statement and Dr. Craddock's question, how can we begin using stories and story centric models within the church for the sake of the gospel. So you're asking me how? Is that the question, or or can we? Would Maybe you? both. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I certainly think we can. Uh, it's going to take some work uh, because, as we've stated before, I think the church has been conditioned to mm. have communication directly um, and the concepts laid out to them, and then maybe some stories sprinkled in to lighten the atmosphere, to maybe bring some light or some refresher as people are falling asleep or whatever. 
so uh, I think it can, but it's going to take some time. Uh, I'll tell you a story of what happened to me just to show you the, the contrast. Um, and I was in Ethiopia uh, several years ago, and we were still in the process of trying to uh, you know, hammer out this whole curriculum that we've developed. And I was with a group of Ethiopian leaders and one of our, my uh, colleagues from West Africa was there observing and watching this whole thing as, as I was teaching. And we were telling a story about a, uh, it was a fictional story that we've written about a man who started well in ministry and ended poorly. So it's about finishing well. And as we told the story, I, you know, I, I told the story and then uh, as, as I typically did, we would sort of make sure everybody understood the story. So we'd go back through the story and sort of retell the story. And the conversation during that part was very lively. And I was, um, you know, I, I was saying, you know, let's tell me about Dr. Uh, Agula or whatever his name was. And while I was going through it, and finally, I, then I switched and I did what I would typically do to an American audience say, now, how does this apply to you? And suddenly the room went silent and nobody would speak. Um, and afterwards, we were debriefing about this and my colleague, her name's Franz Lees. She said, you do realize you offended the people in the room. And I said, what do you mean I offended the people in the room? I just asked a question, how does this apply to you? She said, what you were doing is you were asking them directly to apply it to themselves. And it's, of course, in a shame culture, that's, you know, in a context that they won't respond mm. to. Here's the point. The point is, is that in shame cultures, that's why story works so well. And that's why they prefer story because it's indirect communication. They know good and well that you're talking about Dr. Agula, but you're really talking about them, although never saying so. Mm. But the moment you turn and say you, it becomes direct communication. And so that's why story is so powerful in these shame cultures. We don't live in a shame culture per se. We live in a guilt innocence culture. But I believe that we have more shame elements in our culture than ever before as we're being affected by other cultures. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, the indirect communication, as I think Kierkegaard said, is much more, much more effective because it allows people to peer into the situation and see themselves in the context rather than our telling them. And as Fred Craddock said, it's actually an insult to many people when you've told them a story and then say, then hold up a mirror and say, isn't that you in the mirror? That's an insulting <laughs> statement. Um, so in a story, the power of it is being able to allow people to peer in from the outside as a third person and, and discover th for themselves. And that's very real in many African cultures. Uh, but I believe it can be true in ours as well. And that's mm. the, that's the beauty of going to a movie. Nobody stands up at the end of the movie and says, here are the three points I want you to take away from this movie. Mm. But it's, it's something that we're allowed to stare into our coffee cup at the end of the movie and discover for ourselves.
Yeah. Yeah, it allows us to learn something about ourselves when we when we watch a story play out. We relate to the character in that story, exactly. what they're going through, what their what their challenges and struggles are that they're overcoming, and realizing that hey, I've got similar challenges and struggles in my own life, and what that individual learned in that story directly applies to what I'm experiencing in my own. And life. that's why story is such a universal tool. And so powerful because it allows us to do that no matter how sophisticated we are to go through that process. We mm. do it by automatically. We do it by nature. Mm. When you were telling that, that story of holding up the mirror for the audience, that <laughs> the, the story that came to mind was when Nathan challenges David and tells a story you are uh, the man. <laughs> and then he's like, hey, uh, that I'm talking about you, right? Man. I think David already had that figured out by the end. Yeah. That was my interpretation. <laughs> uh, interesting. Mm. Um, and we talked about this a little bit, but the primary way in which God has chosen to speak to us is through his word, right? Which simply is both a grand narrative of his redemptive work, but also a collection of stories. So within scripture, we see this redemptive narrative and drama of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Um, how is this literacy-focused world reshaping and compressing the gospel for the sake of simplicity and efficiency? And how is that harming our worldview on, on feelings and emotions? Well, that's a huge question. Um, my mind first goes again to our person we referred to a number of times, Fred Craddock. Mm. He, uh, he mentioned that, that we, we all know that we need to, to, to communicate faithfully what the Bible says. But he said, I think we violate the scripture. This is his words. He thinks like we violate the scripture when we ignore how the scripture says it. Mm. Uh, so, for example, we generally, and again, this is the way I was trained, we generally approach every genre of scripture with the same way of preaching it. So we'll preach the Psalms, the poetry, the same way we would preach Romans. When Jesus, typically, when Jesus uh, says, once upon a time, there was a man who fared sumptuously, we say, now there's three things you need to learn about about wealth. Uh, and we go and talk about Alton must and should. That's not what Jesus said. He told the story. Um, mm -hmm. And so what if, as a starting point, we were to say, okay, how is the scripture telling this story? And begin to pay greater attention to that, um, as opposed to just what is the scripture communicating? How is it communicating it? And I think that would dramatically um, adjust our preaching, our approach to the preaching, um, the, pre the task of communicating the scriptures. Mm. That's interesting. Well, then that, so ask that your question again. I, I probably went off on a tangent, but. No, that's good. Well, so the question was with this, with this biblical narrative in mind, right? creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right. Uh, I might 
that that's how I generally see the entire biblical narrative broken down. I I might break it down a little bit differently, but that's not for today's discussion. <laughs> but how how is how is the literacy focused world reshaping and compressing the gospel for the sake of simplicity and efficiency? Yeah. And how is that harming our worldview on feelings and emotions? In the first part of your book, you talk about how, and we've we've addressed it here today a little bit. Um, the, I think that at least in the West, there's a fear of the feelings and the emotions yeah. of how we're wired, yeah. and and story has a way of addressing both sides, right? Um, whereas, like we're the Holy Spirit to, to a lot of places is just a retired author, right? It's not this living and active. Um, it's, it's not God living and active in our lives. It, we're we're fearful of the feelings and the emotions um, of our faith, and so that there's that that literacy focused worldview, or it, it kind of it plays to that, right? Yeah, I have to I have to confess to start with that that I'm I'm not a touchy feely guy myself personally. Yeah, and I grew up to be rather suspicious of emotion because I saw it abused in the church, and I mm. go into stories and tell of the some of the crazy stuff I saw, and and it uh, it it you know sort of turned me off. Um, so for a lot of years, I struggled with it because I preferred to go to somewhere where somebody was thinking, you know, mm-hmm. and and using their brains. But then I went to and I went to good seminaries, but it was, it was kind of cold because everything mm-hmm. was, was back to facts. And, and, and it's interesting that we, because of our uh, industrial age, we, we do look at efficiency as a high in high regard. It's it, the whole modernist model of efficiency was input throughput output. Uh, and you can, the, most output you can get from the least amount of input and throughput, the better off you are. That's what Henry Ford sold, sold cars on that whole model. Mm-hmm. So the efficiency thing, we got it honest uh, through a whole for last 200 years, but efficiency applied to the gospel gets tricky mm. because uh, emotions are very much a part of our makeup. And I would say that most of us, the most important decisions we've ever made in life, the life-changing decisions, uh, include all of us, every part of us, uh, including our emotion. And if emotions are extracted from it, it's likely that those those decisions and those life changes will be short-lived. We could be convinced of something, but it's not going to move us very far. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that uh, I think we do use the word efficiency. We, uh, have sort of shrunk the gospel to, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to pick on Bill Bright. He's one of my heroes of the faith, but his, uh, you know, his four, four spiritual laws thing, uh, you know, where there's four statements and you come to Jesus and bada bing, bada boom, <laughs> um, it's a little bit truncated. And the other fact is that, you know, Bill Bright also did the train. Remember the, the fact drives the train and the faith comes next. And then the feeling is the caboose 
with the mm. idea if a caboose comes along, some trains don't even have a caboose. Forget the caboose, you know. And it's and it's well, fine. <laughs> in in oral cultures and story centric cultures, it's often the opposite. If you're not experiencing something, it can't possibly be real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that involves the emotion. It, it and so when we go into these cultures and talk about leadership development. We don't talk about a curriculum. We talk about de- about a developmental experience because we want them to experience something. We want them to feel something with these with these stories. They're absolutely true, but the meaning atta- is attached through the feeling, if you will. Yeah. Uh, it's. It, it, I was reading just this morning a, a piece that someone wrote on great storytelling. Great storytelling requires that we get in touch with how we feel about Mm. something. If it doesn't do that, then it simply leaves us with a collection of facts. Mm. And, and I think that oftentimes again, um, the, the whole literacy world has, has pushed aside emotions as these pesky little distractions, but, but far be it, uh, you know, and some of the people that are specialists that I respect, they're looking at the scriptures and asking the question, how did these characters, as they related to one another, how did they feel? What was the emotion going on here mm-hmm. among these people? And it really brings this stuff to life when we begin to look at it from that perspective. But you got to dig in and there's not a shortcut to that. Uh, and it sort of blows efficiency out of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if efficiency is our goal, then emotions tend to take a, a back seat. Yeah. You you might know him, uh, a guy named Ravi Jayakaran. We've had him on the show before, runs a ministry called uh, Medical Ambassadors International. And he was, and I think he still is a part of the Luzon, um, Luzon movement, Luzon conference and all that stuff. But he talks about this balance between word and deed. We see in how Jesus models ministry. Mm-hmm. It's the the deed is never separated from the word the the de- the the experiential healings and and things right. that he was doing in that space uh was never separated from the truth or his compassion was never separated from his truth they always were hand in hand and supported right. one another and he was i think what you're talking about he was speaking to both sides of our brain he was speaking to the whole person yeah and and yeah. I, I agree i think that we've compartmentalized things and created two different sides of two different camps, if you will, one on the emotional experiential, how do I feel about this side? And the other on the intellectual logical, like, how do I think about this and and what is theologically and doctrinally sound? And, and they become at war with one another when we don't consider all these things from a more holistic perspective. Um, and so, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you remember in the book, but I made a reference to a to a neurobot neuroscientist. His name is Ian McGilchrist. That, that rings a bell. It is book called "Divided Brain and the Making of the West," and it's a fascinating book. I would highly recommend it. It's it's not an easy read, but it's worth reading. He talks about uh, what is classically been called the two hemispheres of the brain, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And of course, it's not easily, it's not it's as not easily easy. divided as that, but, right. but there's more, they're more alike than they are different. It's kind of like a Mac and a, 
and a PC computer. They both have microprocessors and stuff. But there are differences. And he makes the point that uh, the, the right hemisphere of the brain is the hemisphere that re typically receives input from the environment. So this raw data that mm -hmm. comes in through our senses and so forth is received. The left hemisphere is, is supposed to take that information and categorize it, uh, mm -hmm. make it meaningful, meaning, make it understandable to us. Uh, it, it makes sense of life, this sort of thing. So we have these categories. So when we see a person say, oh, that's a, you know, that's a girl or that's a man or whatever. Um, and, and so the, these, these two hemispheres are supposed to work what he calls reverberatively, reverberatively, uh, which means back and forth. Okay. Um, as the left hemisphere is creating new categories, logical categories, based on the data it receives from the right, then the right hemisphere continues to provide further information to sort of adjust what the left hemisphere is categorizing. So it goes on throughout life. You get the point. Mm-hmm. So the brain functions best when both categories are functioning at their optimal level. Mm. The problem is, is that over time in the enlightenment period, the left hemisphere began to take over because the focus was on rational thinking. Right. Now, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing the enlightenment. The enlightenment had a lot of good about it. Right. But one that... The bad part was it it moved to abstract thinking, abstract mm -hmm. reality, so that word, what we were thinking, became the primary part of reality. And that's where word and deed, word and other input experience began to be separated. Mm -hmm. And so the enlightenment focused on saying, I, I, I think, therefore I am. See, that's where that came from. So it's my knowledge makes me who I am. And that gets separated from experience. And what happens, though, in that is that the left brain becomes a bully in that process. And because it's more sophisticated, it's the, it's the hemisphere of language. It's the hemisphere of concepts and logic and rational thinking, scholastics and so forth. And so it becomes the bully and the right hemisphere is continuing to re receive this input, but the left brain eventually says, I got what I need, let's move with it. Mm. And sort of begins to see the left, the right hemisphere as unsophisticated. And so as you look in, in a society like ours, um, leadership begins to see knowledge and scholastic and rational thinking as primary where experience and emotion becomes at best secondary. Mm. And that's where our problem arises. Hollywood has come back and said, hey, you got it wrong. We've got yeah. to bring experience back into the mix. And that's why they're winning culture. And the, why the propositional preacher stands up on Sunday morning and says, thus says the Lord. And people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't mm. compete. Because we're, we're not allowing this new experience to to impact our left brain, uh, the rational side of our brain. We're still living in that enlightenment space. Mm. Does that make any sense at all? I know that's down the rabbit hole. But no, that does. And I've, about. I've thought a lot about this within 
Like one of the things that I struggle with as a creative uh, within the church is the, the creative, the creative side of the church and what we're producing is for a long time, it's getting better, but for a long time was so awful and, yeah. and uh, films so bad. I mean, for the yeah. first time, the chosen, I mean, for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Passion of the Christ was the first good piece of media content produced by a church in years, right. maybe hundreds of years, you could right, argue. Right, right. Where and and then the Chosen again is the first piece of media that's like, okay, this is high quality, great acting, really great script writing. It's visually, it's like it's great storytelling. And how has it taken us so long? And I've thought about like how how did we get from the Renaissance era, where the church was the driving force in art. Right now, you could argue the stuff that was coming out wasn't necessarily uh, um, all that great, you know. But we won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, how did we get from that, where the church was producing and driving culture and art, to where we are so, so left behind in in what Hollywood is the, doing? I, I believe Zach, it was the Enlightenment. That as you said that I was like that's what happened right we yeah. were we were what creative side is the right brain right so we were right brain uh-huh. focused yeah. for all of the Renaissance and then we take a hard one eighty and go enlightenment and completely focus on the logical side of the brain and it completely uh-huh. disrupted what was going on and taking place in the Renaissance and I don't think we've been able to recover I mean I think we're starting to see some shifts in what is being produced by the church. Um, in the art and music landscape, um, that left and, side and of the brain. And that's a refreshing thing to see. Right. But I would say that the vast majority of the evangelical church to this day will go to church on Sunday morning and they'll say, I'm a better Christian because I know more now than I did an yeah. hour ago. Yeah. Uh, it has nothing to do with experience. And that can't compete with culture that is attaching right. meaning every day of the rest of the week to, to their reality. Yeah. It can't compete. Well, and, and when we think about this from our perspective as an agency trying to help the church function well in this marketing space, uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot is, um, I think, and we talked about this offline, but I think the church is doing a relatively decent job uh, at creating knowledge-based uh, information transfer, sure. knowledge-based transfers. Sure. Uh, we're broadcasting our sermons and our weekly Bible studies and our biblical training. And you can go online and get a Absolutely. seminary online for super cheap. Like we're doing that side of the brain really, really well. Sure. And yet it has very little effect in the digital space. It's having very little effect at uh, competing with what the, the world is doing, the secular world in that space. And I believe it's because we're not starting first or at least uh, incorporating with what we're doing in that side of the brain and that side of the space with story. So if we categorize, we would categorize content in three ways, uh, inspirational, educational, and informational. Now those second two, educational and informational content, man, within the global church, we're killing it there. Yeah, we're yeah. putting out all kinds of great stuff, but yeah. it's not accompanied by any inspirational story driven testimony focused content. Now we'll pastors and, and ministry leaders across the board will tell you, Oh, I'm storytelling. I'm st- we're storytelling with our sermons. We're storytelling with what we do at our ministry. 
it's not the case, right? We're not, we're not comparing that educational informational information that we're sharing with the world with story. And it's never going to land because we haven't emotionally engaged with anybody yet. That has to be there. Education and information absolutely have to be there. But in support of somebody who's been emotionally engaged first. Until I'm emotionally engaged, I'm not ready to hear your Bible training. I'm not ready to hear all the stuff that you have in support of whether the Bible's truthful or not, right? Like, and then to your point earlier where, where we are, what's going on in the world and the culture in which we're living, like story, you can't argue with story. That's my experience. That's what God did in my life. There is no argument for that. I've watched him work. My life is transformed and you can see the difference between how I acted yesterday and how I act today. And this is what happened. Christ transformed my life. Let me tell you about it. And now I've been, somebody has been emotionally engaged by that life transformation, that story or testimony. And now they're starting to be ready to receive some of the stuff that we're already doing. And, and so, just decide as an encouragement to your listeners, regardless of who you're talking to, whether it's a, a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, my own experience is that they're open to hear your story. Mm. And so learn to tell your story well. Yeah. Because they're not ready to listen to your apologetic. Right. They're not ready to listen to your argument or your even propositions but they will listen to your story and they'll Mm. listen to it gladly because it's part of their culture. Be ready to listen to theirs as well, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Can I tell you my story, but uh, I don't want to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Won't probably land well. Oh man, this has been good. Um, Okay. So with, with some of that stuff in mind, we've talked a lot about a lot today, right? For ministry leaders listening to this episode, how can how can their ministries, how can their churches, uh, how can the church start moving tangibly in a more story centric, um, story driven, story informed direction? What are some tangible ways in which we can start effectively reaching an increasingly oral tradition culture um, and start pushing back on on this area of where the secular world is really dominating right now. And, and how can we push back against that and start breaking through some of that noise? Well, without at the risk of repeating myself, I would say, first of all, to uh, make yourself aware of the power of story, mm-hmm. uh, become convinced of its primary place in pretty much all cultures today. Uh, and how it is affecting cultures worldwide. Uh, that's, that's first. Second, I'd say a good place to start is to learn to tell your story well mm. uh, as leaders uh, without going into a lot of abstracts, without a lot of, a lot of concepts, but tell your story. Uh, create it with characters, and I don't mean made-up characters, but real ones. Share the share the, the tension, share the struggle, share the goal. Uh, think about those different elements of your story and and uh, learn to tell it well uh, and use employ the emotional sides of it. Don't be afraid of sharing 
somebody said that to tell a good, good story, you've got to get in touch with your own feelings and how, mm-hmm. how you feel. Uh, so that's a place to start. And then after you've learned to tell your own story, then learn to uh, then help others, train others, coach others, mentor others to tell their story well. Um, when we begin to do that and, and, and we begin to see the impact of our story on other people, we will have a, our, our, our view of story will go up. But until then, my, my sense is that the church will continue to be suspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's when we see and when we recognize the impact of our own stories, both on our own lives and our own journeys and on our journey on the lives of others, then we begin to see the power of story uh, in, a more, in a broader sense. Uh, mm. So start with us and, and build out from there. Mm. On Selfish Plug, uh, we have on our site, reliantcreative.org slash courses, you can take, there's, we have courses on how to tell your well, testimony. Right. Take got these cor- courses for sure. Yeah, like there's there's plenty of content out there that, that both we have created and others have created to help you in that space. Um, obviously, we're thinking about this from a marketing perspective and a, and a ministry growth side of things, but um, Rick Sessom's book, I'm in the middle of it right now. It's, it's been eye-opening for me. Leading with story is a, is a great way to start. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that, that can help you begin framing your mindset around this. Um, man, Rick, this has been really, really fun for me. I appreciate you being on the show. If people want to learn more about you, uh, learn more about your ministry, uh, see if there's anything that you can do in partnership with some of these organizations that are listening, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, go to our website, freedomtolead.net, or you could email me directly at rick at freedomtolead.net. Uh, awesome. Freedom to lead, just like the name of the organization, .net. Okay. Uh, rick at freedomtolead.net. It's been a joy to be with you. Quite a privilege. Thank you. Yeah. Can I pray for you real quick as we sure. wrap up? Father, I just thank you so much for Rick. I thank you for this. Uh, this was a really uplifting conversation for me. And uh, thank you for all that he's doing uh, to answer the call you place on his life. Lord, I pray that you would bless freedom to lead. I pray that you would bless Rick, that you would just continue uh, to help all of us testify of what you're doing and how you're transforming lives. Father, we know that you are active in some incredible ways all over the world. Um, transforming, shifting mindset, changing lives, rescuing, healing, redeeming. Father, you are um, active in this work to redeem humanity back to yourself. And there are millions and, and billions of stories to testify of what you've done in, in everybody's li- in, in believers' lives, what you're doing in those that don't know you yet. Um, you're moving and active, and, and we recognize that, and we want to be better at testifying of what you've done for your glory, for the edification of your church, and then for all the other areas in in our ministries and lives that is applicable. Lord, we love you. Uh, Thank you again for this conversation. And in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Rick, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.